weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomena. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. I'm your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Today we're discussing A Peculiar Paradise, a collection of Florida photographs taken by Nathan Benn while on assignment for National Geographic during the infamous 80s. I caught up with Nathan at History Miami during opening night of his exhibit and invited him to talk about his experiences. We're speaking with Nathan Benn, who's had a colorful and fulfilling career as a longtime National Geographic photographer from 1972 to 91, entrepreneur who started Picture Network International, which was the first online digital library for stock photography, that's before Shutterstock and Getty Images, and director of, of the photography company Magnum Photos. He has now basically come full circle to rediscover his own images, and he's sharing them with us. I'm also joined again by my partner in crime, Chris Mancini, um, crime history enthusiast, author, attorney, and peculiar guy. <laughs> so we're just going to well, have we a... We all fit. Yes. Peculiar, yes. I fit right so in. So Chris is going to throw in a few questions, too. So welcome, Nathan. Let's just set the stage. You're born and raised here in South Florida. You attended UM, uh, and basically you couldn't wait to get out of Dodge. Yep. That's true. It's <laughs> so, true. I'm happy to be back in Dodge, but Dodge, the Dodge that I grew up in does not exist anymore mm-hmm. because the Dodge that I grew up in was a small southern town of 50,000 people and everybody spoke English. Mm-hmm. That town is long gone. And uh, hallelujah. I spent my first 22 years here, uh, born in Little River, graduated from the University of Miami and uh the morning after graduation, got in my little foreign, <laughs> <laughs> tiny little car and drove to Washington and started working for National Geographic. Just like that. So that was 1972. Oh, 72. First week of 1972, I was still 21 years old. Basically, you, you traveled all over the world. You saw yes. a lot of things. and But then come the 1980s, you get this assignment saying... Basically, you're going to go back to your hometown, which at that point we were in kind of a crisis with the, you know, multi-billion dollar drug industry, this influx of refugees and everything going on. What what was your initial thought when you kind of got that assignment? I was delighted yeah? because, okay. <laughs> uh, first of all, coming back to Florida, my parents lived here. At the time, they've passed away since, but it was good that I could see my parents, my sister. Florida was exciting at the time. The the problems of Florida, people who came in the Marielle boat, boat lift, lift. Yeah. were mm-hmm. some of them uh, were people who did bad things. And uh, that was getting international news. Um, you had also uh, uh, every day one or two boats from Haiti would arrive. Yeah. Um, the drugs were notorious and glamorized in the media. It, it gave a journalistic angle which is missing from most National Geographic stories and certainly National Geographic state stories in that period. Miami had this element of uh, disruption and yeah. crime yes, uh, and illicit trade uh, that's where, that that's made where, it exotic. That's where Chris comes in. Chris, Chris actually came here. Also, during the Mario boat lift, yeah. not with the Mario boat. It might have been. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, as I sit here listening to you talking about the intersection of geography and crime in your life, 
Um, did you give much thought? Did you just do much work about the Miami River? The Miami River has always fascinated me as being the entry point for so much of this. You mentioned the Haitian boats. Remember the Haitian freighters on the Miami River? Vaguely, they, well, very the, vaguely. The freighters would come in, and, and the big kind of a trope was that uh, everything that got stolen in Miami ended up on those freighters. And it was taken <laughs> back to Haiti, right? I missed that. Yeah, you missed that part. <laughs> but there's no doubt that uh, a large number of people came up the river during the boat lift. Remember, yes. so it's yeah. just riffing off the idea of geography, and and how that impacted. It was like a gateway into right. the heart of Miami. Right. Okay. The other thing I wanted to ask you: Do you do you remember those bumper stickers that said, uh, "Will the last American leaving Miami turn <laughs> off the lights?" <laughs> turn off the lights. Exactly. Or, so. or bring the flag. Or br- and bring yeah. the flag. Yeah. That was also uh, one. Yeah. 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 Well, uh, I didn't. I did not spend a lot of time with people who felt that way. Good. I did one day. Um, I learned that there was going to be a protest against the an initiative to make Miami officially bilingual, or yes. at least that the government was going to be required to publish things in Spanish as well as English. And this brought out um, people from out, out of the woodwork who were from um the another I don't I, I don't you know when I talk about these people I don't want to sound you sound like you're being careful <laughs> I am being careful I am being careful not on the because show. No, I no, have it's you okay. go it's you okay go for it. it's okay no, I, I, you know these are people who were dis that felt disenfranchised by what happened after 1959 yeah. and these were Floridians and these peoples you know some of these people were in families when my parents in World War II came to Miami uh, as uh, newbies and refugees and as and as outsiders, as Jews. And, uh, and Miami was, you know, didn't have a, a significant Jewish community. Um, growing up, we were visited by the Ku Klux Klan when I was a kid in Little River. Um, and when I worked for the Miami News in the 19, late 1960s, I photographed Ku Klux Klan rallies in West Miami with burning crosses and hoods and all of that. So, you know, the city that I grew up in was a white cracker town. Uh, and I, as a Jew, was a minority. Um, I'm gl- as I said, I'm glad that city is gone. Um, the only time I really saw those people in Dade County was one day on a protest demonstration where they, they met uh, at the Freedom Torch, ironically, marched down Biscayne Boulevard, marched up Flagler Street with, but with hate in their eyes and hateful signs. And they were really ugly, uh, an ugly group. Um, but I have traveled all around the world and I have been with people in many countries, uh, very different from myself. And I just try to... Uh, Remember, even if I disagree with people, um, that uh, they are human beings. Mm. And so I, I do not use words like deplorable, even though I think some of the things that they might do would be deplorable. Mm. But people are not deplorable. Yeah. Present what? company excluded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. no. you, know, you know, Davey used to be the headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan and Little Havana. In Miami. Little was, Havana, I didn't know about. Davy, I knew about. I knew that when you got out of Miami, yeah. uh, it was the South. And oh, yeah. for the story, 
you know, in 1981, I was photographing all over the state. Right. So I spent time in, you know, the Panhandle. I spent time in, uh, you know, the tobacco auctions and cattle ranches and mm-hmm. sugarcane fields. And um, and really appreciate that what my what Florida was, was um, a collection of tribes. Ah. Uh, and that's well, well that's, said. That still Absolutely is. well said. It still yeah. is, yeah. kind of. Because it had been, I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know that it was like maybe 10 years that you came back to Miami, although you probably came back for family. I came back for family occasionally, but short right. visits, yeah. So were you looking at Florida with a different set of eyes now when you, and when I say Florida, I don't just mean down here because you said you went to different parts of the state. Right. So was it was it a different perspective for you? Did you did you was there any like eye opening well, moment I, or takeaway? Th- yeah, I don't think any more than any place because going somewhere as a National Geographic photographer, mm-hmm. at least my personal experience is that you are just you are really hyper focused on where you are. You yeah. collect tidbits and leads from every source. You read every local newspaper. You know, your antenna are up because, you know, things are happening somewhere that are making great pictures and you've got to get out of your hotel room in your rental car and go be in the right place. I, w- I was certainly aware of the uh, narcotics trade right. and the crime rate. Um, I was a great fan of the wonderful mid-century New York photographer Arthur Felig, better known as Ouija, who did the great photographs collected as Naked City mm-hmm. uh, and really set the standards of uh, street photography uh, and photographed um, terrible things, yes. but with a great narrative eye um, and made pictures that are not ghoulish, right? but were interesting and went beyond the specifics of the particularly ghoulish scene or horrible fire or whatever he was photographing, the pictures that were more universal. And that, you know, that was, has always been my goal working for magazines is that you're photographing something that goes beyond the – not reporting – not uh, not a good picture because it faithfully reports – the specific moment, but a good picture because it is more universal that after that moment, after the fish right. is wrapped in the morning edition right. and the picture paper newspaper is thrown away, that picture could live on because it speaks to something that is uh, human and universal yes. and beyond time. Yeah, your pictures were a great form of storytelling. Um, it it just captures the essence of the moment as if they didn't even know you were there. You know, you're like, you know what I mean? I mean, some of them are posed to the camera, but mm-hmm. I love the ones where um, you're just a fly on the wall. Yes. <laughs> kind of, you know I try mean? to be, and I, yes, fly on the wall is that what is, I, that is so powerful. where I tried to go mm-hmm. uh, whenever <laughs> I could. And I, I say there are two kinds of photographers. There are gatherers and there are farmers. And I'm a gatherer. Okay. You yeah. show up and you gather as opposed to go and produce. Right. So, um, you know, you're in a, a farmer, you go there and you create something. As right. a gatherer, you 
You're a Tr- witness. You're a yeah. witness. You're a witness. And photography for always, I, I, I admire all kinds of good photography, but mm-hmm. the photography that always speaks to me and made me want to become a photographer, I learned from Life magazine in the 1950s and 60s. Those were my heroes. That's what I aspired to do. Yeah. And, the, and that was... Uh, and and what I connected with was just being the witness. People were very aware that I was there, and they were. I had a re, reaction or yeah. or a conversation with them. Um, but I, none of all of them are authentic. All of them are real. None of them are created situations. The best example of that, the, I think, the place where I most enjoyed photographing mm-hmm. uh, was the the Fifth Street Gym. Yes. Uh, second floor at Fifth Street in Washington, Chris Dundee's establishment. And Chris and Angelo were very media savvy. They had good coverage in the Miami News and Herald. Uh, I got to, yeah, I would be assigned every Tuesday night when I was working for the Miami News to go photograph the fights or the, the wrestling match, the fights, I guess it was boxing. Yeah. And, um, and, I started going there in the 60s to photograph, and then I was so happy in 1981 going back that it, it hadn't changed much, and it had these great west-facing windows that allowed enough light in so I could shoot color photographs. But the really great thing about it was nobody cared that I was there. I would be there for hours, <laughs> and I would come, you know, any any kind of—if I was down in this area and I had nothing else I could think of doing, I'd go to the Fifth Street Gym. And— um, you know, you had two kinds of people there. You had uh, these incredible athletes who were working really hard mm-hmm. uh, and paying no attention to you. And then you had these kibitzing old guys. <laughs> and there were the old, you know, Jewish and Irish and Italian kids growing up, you know, grew up in tough streets in South Philadelphia or Queens mm-hmm. and grew up with their fists. And now we're, uh, you know, teaching these kids 50 years younger than they were how to fight. But they, this, the, the relationship between these old guys yeah. and the kids was a beautiful thing to observe. And again, nobody ever cared that I was there. On the subject of your your crime photographs, how did you how did you have access? It was easy at the time. Miami with the Miami Police Department. Oh, okay. Um, I just called the Miami Police Department, and I think they actually had a program for civilians, so that any civilian could call and say, "I'd like to spend time with a you know with a uh, with police on patrol." I don't know if that still exists. I'm certain that existed when I was. In college, because I did it though. once or twice in college. Um, I wouldn't let my kid do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it's kind of crazy because you were there for some serious busts. You well, know? mostly no. what they were doing. I mean, my my recollection with the city of Miami police is it was mostly routine. Um, the exciting moments and the picture opportunity was when we they did go to not shake down is not the right word but they checked out a bar in little havana that they had told me was a place that was a hotbed of narcotics trafficking and um and it was a very exotic interior scene and there's a photograph in the show of a cop um intimately 
attached to a bar patron. Um, it looks like they're dancing the tango. Um, and uh, But in fact, the policeman is patting down the gentleman who is a dead reckoning double for Geraldo Rivera with this magnificent mustache. And what I'm sure was the height of fashion in a bell-bottom uh, uh, suit, the height of fashion of 1980, holding a cigarette and a drink and not losing an ash or spilling a drop of whiskey, um, <laughs> as if this is happening every day. But it, it's a rather odd-looking moment. The other uh, very memorable and tragic uh, event that I had not anticipated was that riding around with this policeman one day who was a rookie and uh, I, I guess was not from Miami, uh, and it was just the two of us in the car, maybe at 3 a.m. on a moonless night. And a call came in on the police radio saying that a fisherman had found a body part on the Julia Tuttle Causeway. And we were not far away, and the cop said, where's the Julia Tuttle Causeway? Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I led him there, and we were oh. the first <laughs> people responding to this call and we parked the car, walked down to the beach. Um, it was totally dark. I remember the, the cop leading the way with a flashlight uh, and I was behind him with a camera and my flash uh, and found the fisherman who led us to this half torso that had washed ashore. And the torso had been submerged in the water for some a little time, not a long time because it wasn't eaten up but it was in but it was horribly mutilated the arms and legs and head were gone and the bottom part of the torso was missing but it was bloodless it was completely bloodless and it had this uh, I mean it's shocking to find a half of a young man on the beach um, washed ashore it's um, but it was also not gory because it the had, lack of blood? Because of the lack of blood, because it was all washed. It was immaculately washed. Yeah. And so it looked more, you know, in the photographs, I didn't think of this at the time, but looking at the photographs, it looked like a fragment of a Greek statue of an athlete, oh, you know, where yeah. these statues are dug up and they're in pieces, and it looked like a piece of an athlete. But in fact, it was a human being. It was somebody's son. It was very sad um, and horribly murdered. Um, so that picture is in the show. and Was it, it ever identified? I mean, could they identify it? No. I don't know if the police ever identified it. I made an attempt last year when I was putting this together and editing. I would have liked very much to have known the name and history of this poor person, of this person who is a victim. And it was probably in the drug trade. I mean, it, yeah. um, but it was still uh, a tragic thing to happen. This was at a time when the Miami morgue was renting refrigerated trucks from Burger oh, King. Yeah. From what? Burger King. So you could have it your way. Be, so, <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. But I'm uh, the Whopper. It, it is. 
That's twisted. <laughs> He's twisted. I told you he was peculiar when we started well, this. Well, it is. Yeah. I mean, you've got to have some sense of humor to have dealt with this. Yeah. And let's say Edna Buchanan or Milt Sosin right. or Carl Hyacin. Right. Right. I worked right. with Milt. He was one of the most oh, interesting Milt characters was, ever known. Oh, God. I, Milt, Milt never found Milt. a corner in the courthouse where he didn't find me and then ask me, what's going on? What's going on? Yeah. Well, and he shoved that pipe in and started yeah. walking around. And then he drove the most interesting Jaguar. Jaguar. He had, he had a primrose. He had a primrose jag. Yep. I knew Milt very well. Yep. When he died, I went to his uh, his wife's and uh, went through his collection. Of his old, wife's collection of of old newspaper clippings. Because you didn't mention the most out besides the pipe. Yeah. And that the hat and and the the worst hat in the world that Milt was. Am I exaggerating if no. I say eight feet tall? No. What? Uh, Mill, was, Mill was in a combination of Ichabod Crane really? and Mr. Tatu, who is this French comedian. He looked exactly like these two guys melded together. Oh, how bizarre. But Mill was one of the most tenacious people I ever met. He never, I was a U.S. attorney in those days. Uh-huh. So he, I was a source for him, you know, when he could get, uh-huh. get something out of me, which he did occasionally. But he, he was the most tenacious guy. And I would fight with Edna Buchanan constantly. It was a constant. I did. I did battle. not. I did not know Edna, but I read her, mm. and I know you know the corpse had a familiar yes. face. Yes. Starts with a body on the beach. Oh, okay. And yes. um, you know, so the trope of a body on the beach is a very Miami trope, not to make light of it. But Milt was, um, yeah, one of the great pillars of the he, Miami News. He, he and was John something. Crittenden and a few others. But Milt was really special. You didn't mention that besides the Jaguar. At least every time, almost every time I saw Milt, he had a gorgeous model on his arm. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> <laughs> he was this Ichabod Crane with the Jaguar was apparently oh a gosh. real babe magnet in his days. I have to look this image up, don't you? It's like, okay. um, he's terrific. He, he deserves a, a movie of his own. Okay, I want to wrap this back to your book, Peculiar Paradise, which is available Um and of course, it documents the weird and wonderful life in the Sunshine State because it's not just about crime. Now, although Florida will always be peculiar, do you think it's still paradise? Well, this <laughs> week so it careful. is. He's, he's so careful. <laughs> this week it is paradise. You know? The weather is gorgeous. I'm yes. with my wonderful yes. wife and go. her family, and I Good answer. <laughs> uh, and I am greatly honored to have this terrific museum show and being treated as if I were had done something interesting. You have. Um, oh my gosh. So, uh, so actually, yes, actually, it is paradise. Right. Actually, now. you have because it, it's like the people, the young kids that don't even know who the Beatles are. That was an entire era in South Florida history, which is – there are so many people that just don't remember Remember who the Beatles are. What it was – well, not to say the Beatles. They came here too. But but the the point is so much of this history has to be retold. And the best way to do it – one of the best ways to do it is with your book. So you have actually done something. Yes. Especially to old-timers like me who lived through that. That's – Thank you, know, you yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and we recognize our own history, and yeah. hopefully, some people will pick it up. Well, uh, yeah, it's we're ble- I'm blessed to uh, have been around and long enough that people are, you know, think of me as history. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it was, you know, being a photographer for National Geographic for 20 years was the greatest job in the world. People think it's a really good job and would be a really, really good job and they don't know how good it was. Mm-hmm. It was so good that you 
could travel around, open doors, meet interesting people, and Sounds like have a an unlimited Sounds expense like account. And it was, you know, none of that exists anymore, of course, because the disruption of the media world and where Time Life and National Geographic and Look and, you know, used to have huge expense accounts and compete for the great stories. And now everybody is on a tight budget and doing it on a shoestring and trying to figure out how to survive the internet. Um, or doing it on an iPhone. But, uh, or doing it on an iPhone. <laughs> I And that everybody has a camera. Back you know, mm -hmm. when I was doing it, and most people didn't have cameras. So uh, you know, I, I was very, I could not have been born at a happier time for what I aspired to do. What do you think of Florida? Exotic, hypnotic, or just plain weird? Here's one perspective from Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. In the course of my explorations, I have come to realize that there are really three Floridas. The first is the artificial Florida, the one made of concrete, theme parks, billboards, condominiums, and swarms of tourists. The second is what we natives call the real Florida, the one that few tourists seldom venture into. It's the one with swamps, snakes, fish camps, gators, and swarms of mosquitoes. But there is a third Florida, a sometimes elusive one. It's the eccentric one that is woven into the fabric of the other two. Florida is a mixture of fact, fantasy, and folklore, and they are not always easy to separate. That is what gives the state its unique culture. Tell us your thoughts or weird tales. Go to SoFloWeird.com. More information on Nathan Ben's book, A Peculiar Paradise, can also be found on our website. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production, inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs>